Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Hi, uh, from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we can't do all the things on Linux they said can be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be part of the program. It is a free call, 155-450-NOAH, 155-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Good evening. We'll just bunker down together as the Dakotas are jointly under siege are, from are, winter are, weather. Are, are you under siege as well? We are under warning, so it hasn't hit here yet because we're on the far east part of the state, but it's coming west to east. 18 inches of snow is expected over the next day, so like, it is going to be, it's going to be snowmageddon, and it's going to be snowmageddon in April, which means that I am going to have a test for my own survival at a month when I'm supposed to be dealing with spring showers. It's ridiculous, Steve. Absolutely straight (laughs) out, flat out, undeniably ridiculous. Well, what are you going to do, right? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do some feedback. They'll make me feel better. So our first email comes in from Panzer. Panzer writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. On episode 327, Steve mentioned that he was playing around with immutable distros. I'd be curious on his and your thoughts about Fedora Core OS and Fedora IoT. I have both in production on some VMs, and I'm looking to move Home Assistant from Hasio on a USFF Ultra small, small form factor Lenovo to another USFF Lenovo to use Docker. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated, and thanks for what you do to the community. So, Steve, your thoughts on moving Hasio into Docker? Well, I have experience with CoreOS pretty much on a daily basis, although Fedora CoreOS is the upstream, so I don't work usually directly with the upstream. Um, I like it quite a bit. For myself, I like the fact that supervised from Home Assistant kind of controls the entire stack when you put it on top of uh, their VM or their operating system. Now, I know you could do supervised on top of that. I'm just not, I'm not a huge fan of it from the perspective of, I would prefer it to be as close to an appliance as I can. So it's on a dedicated machine for me and just runs their OS. And all I do is take the backups and then restore them into another VM to make sure they work from time to time. So I don't I personally don't want to administer yet another Docker container because I don't even know how many I have here at home mm-hmm. a lot. So I wouldn't do it. I don't think there's a particular problem with it, except that the team at Home Assistant really pushes towards their own operating system. So I'm of two minds, right? On one hand, there is the part of me that tells all of my clients, and even to a degree does this myself at my house, that like if I'm going to have something running on an operating system, I prefer it on the vHost. It it follows a generic pattern for me. All the data is stored on the file server. The file server is mapped to the vHost. The vHost runs all of the things I want to run on the house. The problem, the juxtaposed position that I run into with Home Assistant is Home Assistant is so that darn critical to my day-to-day life like it's my alarm clock it's the thing that monitors my little bedside controller like everything works off of home assistant and the idea that you know hard drive would die or the power i don't know all of the things that would take down 
my host that would then render home assistant unfunctional leads me to want it just on a nice simple other box and so i'm still technically running my home assistant on a raspberry pi and it's not even a nice raspberry pi it's not in a case it's literally a raspberry pi that has an ethernet cable plugged into one and a, a usb cable to power it plugged into the other and it just hangs there but you know what it's worked since day one and if it ever goes down i have a backup sd card ready to go and another raspberry pi ready to go that i can just plug in pull my last backup drop it back onto the device and like you i kind of treat it like an appliance i just want the appliance to be like kind of visual the other thing it gets me and this is not applicable in everybody's situation but it works in my situation my wife is comfortable doing things like oh the raspberry pi crashed he said here's the backup sd card plug it in download the backup file upload the backup config and then it's back bob's your uncle we're back ready to go she would be able to do that she is not going to redeploy a docker container on her own yeah. so yep. for those reasons i choose to I, I keep keep it simple stupid is a valid administration technique and at least from my perspective i i my z wave has been rock solid but my zigbee stuff continues to have problems i'm on my fourth stick i ordered my fifth stick off of the amazon oh no Tell- uh i'm waiting for it to come in this one is from uh sonoff I, it's uh zigbee 3 but the reason why this is important, you mentioned wife. Yeah. I could say one of the solutions for the Zigbee is literally ejecting the USB stick and putting it back in. Uh-huh. So I could absolutely get that her to do that because it's the NUC is mounted on a wall in a specific spot at the house away from all of the other servers. Uh-huh. So there, it, that's it, right? I can say, hey, just unplug this and plug it back in and it'll start working. So for those that maybe haven't caught this story before, can you talk briefly about your struggles with Zigbee and what is the latest development with this fifth stick? What brand is it? And why do you think this was going to work when the other four didn't? Well, okay. So I started using um, Zigbee because it was cheap and everybody talked it up like crazy. It's open source. Uh, yeah. Be open yeah so it, it's an open protocol and that's good. Uh, we won't get into all of the, all of the nitty gritty with that. But so essentially I started off, I didn't just go buy random uh, Zigbee sticks either. Like I went, I went and looked to see like what people recommend and, and I went through various iterations of them and they all have some problem, like either a device drops off and can't join or some variation of, of problem with connectivity before I get the people like furiously slamming on their keyboard. I have multiple routers as in like things that are wired into power. I specifically bought, you know, outlets, Zigbee outlets that are hardwired into power to be a repeater for the rest of the network. So it's not a range issue. But anyways, this current one, whenever Home Assistant reboots for an upgrade or something like that, it just loses the USB. When you go and look, it just doesn't have the USB for the Zigbee anymore. The Z-Wave stick works fine. And so um, the solution for that is just unplug it and plug it back in. And I don't know if it's something to do with like the the Zigbee stick loses power once in a while when the home assistant reboots and that causes it to like go berserk. But that's what my current problem is. Uh, I have absolutely no reason to think that this will change anything with the new plug. Uh, you were asking what, you know, about the new one. Yeah. So there's a zone, a Sonoff, uh, Zigbee three. So like the latest protocol one, mm-hmm. the only reason I went this way is because, uh, over the weekend, I went and hung out with Noah, and I was getting like support messages from my wife being like, this is not working, that's not working, and it was all the Zigbee stuff. And so my option is rip out all the Zigbee stuff, uh, and there's quite a bit, uh, and replace it with something more reliable, or try the stick thing, which is slightly cheaper. So I'm going to go this route, and if this doesn't work, I'm throwing in the towel with Zigbee, and I'm just going to 
bite the bullet. Okay. Well, I wish you the best of luck. You haven't had great luck yet. Maybe this time will be different. Yeah, here's open. Charlie writes in and says, Good eye, everyone. In a recent show, the topic of read-only operating systems, immutable operating systems, has come up. I recommend checking out the following. Check out HeadOS. It's like Tails OS, yet without SystemD. And so you can head to heads.dyne.org. So very cool. I, um, Yeah, very cool to check out. Uh, I think that would be great. I'm not entirely sure what the huge advantage of having... An operating system without system D, even less so an operating system that um, doesn't save any. Like there, there, there's no persistence to Tails OS, so it's literally you just use it, and then you're when you're done, it just it ceases to exist. So I'm I'm less understand, I'm less convinced or understand what the benefit is there. But the more options, the better. Competition is always a good thing. Our third email comes in from Joey. Joey writes in and says, "Hi, gentlemen. Two things. First. It's not exactly what's requested for, but for the listener attempting to firewall his spy TV pinhole, this might be a good fit. And he gives a link to the following blacklist specifically for TVs, and he gives a link to GitHub. So we'll include that for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. And the second thing is, do you use JMP for SMS two-factor? I've been considering the same, but I've heard VoIP members can be distinguished from carrier numbers, and both are often blocked by 2FA Joey. So here's the way that I've gotten around that, Joey. I do use jmp.chat for two-factor, and I have a dedicated phone number that I use only for two-factor authentication slash spam stuff. And the way that I chose to go about doing that is I actually went to my cell phone provider, and I said, I want to purchase a new line and add it onto my plan. And I brought in a, a crappy old phone and said, give me a SIM card. So they gave me a SIM card, and I stuck it in there. I immediately went that day, went home, and ported the number to jmp.chat. Now, here's a little secret about telcos. The number that phone numbers always stay with the original carrier. Porting is really kind of a hack-on request as a way to conform to new regulations that require interoperability between carriers with phone numbers, but you can't really change where a phone number is. And so if you do that, the phone number is typically flagged as a traditional cell phone number. And once you get it added to just a few of the two-factor authentications, I've never had it go to where they detect it as a VoIP number. So that's been my tactic, and that's worked pretty well so far. Now, I will add just for the context of conversation, I have numbers that I've purchased directly through GMP.chat. I have numbers that I've purchased through Vonage, and I've ported to GMP.chat, and I've never had an issue with any of those working with 2FA either. But sharing your concern, because I absolutely had this problem on Google Voice, and since I ported that number to GMP.chat, I no longer have this number. But following that logic, I intentionally purchased a number that I was going to use for 2FA, registered it with all the things, and then ported it over. I've since continued to register it with places, zero problems. Our fourth email comes in from Vladimir. Vladimir writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks so much for your consistently good content. I always look forward to your show each week. I'm looking to replace my end-of-life Asus router AP. It's an RTAC-1200G. Do you have any thoughts about the Ubiquiti UDR or Ubiquiti consumer-grade hardware in general? What would, be, what would you recommend for a mid-size home? I've never had Wi-Fi coverage issues with the old ASUS setup, and I'm open to getting a NetGate or a Microtech switch, but then would still need to figure out an access point for Wi-Fi. We have a home office, mostly Zoom meetings, and also kids streaming video, no gaming or large transfers. I know I could flash OpenWRT on the old ASUS, but I can't afford the downtime if I brick it. A side note. Really appreciate the excellent show notes. I always took a look before writing in, but I believe the Ubiquiti UDR is relatively new and supplies were limited for a long time. Thanks for all you do, Vladimir. 
So, uh, in order, um, I don't have any hands-on experience with the UDR, so I can't speak to that model specifically. I will tell you that, in general, my opinion of Ubiquity routing and switches is it's fine for basic stuff. It falls down pretty quick, pretty fast when you start wanting to do um, more, just more. There's, there's, there's a lot of advanced switching stuff that Ubiquity just fundamentally doesn't have. And the other thing that I'm philosophically opposed to with their gate. Now, this is not there. There are certain models that this is not true for. But for things like the USG, you can. And I don't know which side of this the UDR, UDR falls into. But this is what I would look at to decide if the UDR would even be an option for me or not. Some of the unified devices uh, to include the USG and the USG Pro require the controller to be online to push changes to the gateway. Think about that for a minute. That means if for whatever reason you lose access to your controller, let's say you host your controller on a VM or something like that. If for any reason you lose network access or communication to that controller, you lose the ability to, to manage your gateway, the thing that gets you on the internet, you know, the thing that can get you to YouTube and Google so that you can figure out what's wrong and how to fix it. So to me, that's just a non-starter. I have to be able to get into my gateway. If I could only have access to one network device, it would be my gateway. As far as an access point, I 100% recommend the Unify U6. We uh, we just changed from instant. We used to use UAP AC Pros. When the U6 came out, we switched over to the U6. We had a building that had four UAP Pros in. We switched to the U6, and one access point covers that whole building, whereas we used to have four to cover it. It is unbelievable. It defies logic as to how well the U6 works for Wi-Fi. Um, so and and the great thing is they cost about the same amount of money as the UAP Pro. So if you have a if you have a house that's I would say any less than what do you think, Steve? Three thousand square feet, two thousand square feet, you could probably get away with one UAP Pro if you placed it correctly. Yeah, depending on how whether it's a backsplit and you know what kind of material is in your house, there's always caveats to that, mm. right? Like if you've got solid concrete between you and the thing that like you and your router and uh, access point. You're you're still going to have a bad time. For actual routing appliances, I would strongly push you in the direction. Here's here's what I've 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 gone the direction of I I'm I want to buy a routing appliance that I can put any sort of software on. Now, the advantage of NetGate is you get support, right? And, and now it's they call it they've gone to a new support model. They call it TacLite. So they'll answer questions about like if you've bricked the device or if there's a problem updating it or something like that. But they're not going to help you do like advanced configuration change. Now, a dirty little secret, and hopefully nobody at NetGate yells at me for for putting this out there. If you send any, if you fill out a TacLite support and ask a very direct question that has a very direct answer. More often than not, they'll just send you the answer back. Now, if you if you just throw if you just lob your problem at them, they're going to tell you to pay for a support contract, which is fairly expensive. I think it's like eight nine hundred bucks a year. Um, so what I've gone to is I like to purchase just a generic routing appliance. So go to's there. I think are you still using the protect protectly? Yep. So that's a really good option. Very popular in the open source community. Steve's been using it for years. He's very happy with it. The nice thing about it is so Steve had his storage device fail in the Protectly. Just opens it up. Go buy a consumer hard drive. Stick it in. You're back in business, right? That is absolutely not the case with like Microtech or uh, or NetGate. You have to send it back in. We had one die, a storage device die. We had to send it back into them to get things fixed. And part of that was because of warranty. But still, it's a device made by a manufacturer, right? I personally have gone the Sophos route. I couldn't be happier with my Sophos. So I purchased Sophos devices, and they're, what they are is just an Intel 
computer that is bu- is built like a router. So they have interfaces across the front, good interfaces across the front. They've got a little LCD across the front, and then it's rack mount. Well, they make it in rack mountable form. And so I have, I think it's the 210, SG210. And you take it out and you literally plug a, 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 a VGA or HDMI cable into the back of it. You plug a USB drive into it and you turn it on and press the F11 or whatever the boot menu screen is when it starts up and boot off of the USB and then you can install OpenSense or PFSense or whatever you want. And I bought mine for like 200 bucks or less on eBay. If you buy the, I think it's the 180, you can get it for like $100 or somewhere in that range. So they're dirt cheap and the performance is spectacular. And like Steve, I had my storage drive die in the Sophos and oh well, it's just a 2.5 inch hard drive, so I didn't really care. I just opened it up, pulled the drive that it came with out, put a new drive in, re- imported my, my config, and I was back in business. So that, that, that's where I would go in, in the way of, of routers. I, anything I'm missing, Steve? I would just say, um, how sensitive are you to noise? Because a lot of people mm. that are transitioning away from like an off-the-shelf router like this uh, to anything that has any kind of like... I assume that your Sophos is a little bit noisy, especially compared to these these cots oh, kind of things. Yes, sir. Right? Yeah, but it sits in an IT room, so you're right. That that is something that you're right. That is something to consider, depending on where it is. Yeah, like when I lived in an apartment, that would have been a no go. There's no IT room in an apartment. Mm. So mm-hmm. <laughs> the um, I have to look. I think so. The 115 is it's either fanless or it's extremely quiet sg115 so this one i'm not, i don't know for sure i'm trying to look to see if there's there there is fan ports on it so I, I think it is there must be a fan in there but this the sg115 is fairly quiet more than 10 available on on ebay right now 79 bucks so i don't know i i i would i might give that a shot if you want a surefire thing i would go with the protectly i think they make a fanless uh model Yep, I've got I've got a protectly that's fanless, and then I strapped a a um, oh, I, I actually got a case fan that's super old that doesn't fit in any case anymore, but it's from Noctua, so they're mm. really quiet. And mm-hmm. I basically just I, I soldered some ends together so I could actually plug it into a regular AC outlet, and away you go. Well, and here's the other thing about the protectly. So the way that the case is designed, it's essentially the case is a heat sink, right? Yeah. They make this gigantic thing and they put fins along the top. And so the case itself is dissipating heat even with that. And that's how they're getting away without having to do um, active cooling. So, yeah, I actually use that to my advantage. I have the fan blowing down on it instead of blowing up. And okay. then I actually point the protectly at other devices that don't have fans on it so that the air is venting at like just to get airflow in the general direction. That's absolutely brilliant. So let us know if those work for you. Let us know if you have additional questions. We'd love to answer them right in your questions or your thoughts. Do you have feedback to how we're doing or things you'd like to see covered? You can send those to live at AskNoahShow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of April 2nd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. OBS Studio 29.1 beta comes out with AV1 and HEVC streaming over RTMP as well as lossless audio recording. The Ubuntu Cinnamon Remix has now become an official Ubuntu flavor. Blender 3.5 has been released with new sculpting features, vector displacement map brushes, light sampling, and more. LibreOffice 7.5.2, the open source office suite, is now out with 96 bug fixes. The Wine development release 8.5 is now available. Qt Creator 10, the open-source IDE, has been released with LLVM 16 support and CMake improvements. And the Qt Group has also released 
QT 6.5 as an LTS. The last surviving fork of Mandriva has just put out its new release with Plasma 5.23. System76 has released a new generation of its Gazelle Linux laptop with Intel 13th Gen CPUs and an RTX 3050. Big Tree Tech has announced their new Pad 7, an open-source control tablet for 3D printers. KDE Plasma Mobile has been ported to KDE Framework 6 and QT6. The Linux Foundation has announced the keynote speakers for the Open Source Summit North America 2023. Canonical has recently released Ubuntu Pro, a comprehensive subscription for open source security, compliance, and support. Ubuntu Pro was introduced as a beta in October of 2022, but is now generally available. Linux kernel vulnerabilities in a few older Ubuntu releases, the LTS release 18.04 and 20.04, as well as the 14.04 ESM release, has let hackers launch DOS attacks and execute arbitrary code. If you are running these versions, update as soon as you can. And an unknown Chinese state-sponsored hacking group has been linked to a novel piece of malware aimed at Linux servers. French cybersecurity firm Exatrack found three samples of the previously documented malicious software that date back to early 2022, and has dubbed it Melofi. The newest of the three artifacts is designed to drop a kernel-mode rootkit that's based on an open-source project referred to as Reptile. And lastly, the cybersecurity reachers at Palo Alto's network's Unit 42 have discovered a new strain of Silence ransomware, which has already claimed several victims. Researchers noticed it early last Friday morning, and further probing has revealed that it is targeting Linux and Windows devices. So the Internet Archives is in real danger, and this is due to a lawsuit over ebooks and copyright infringement. So here's kind of where it stands today. A federal judge has sided in favor of the four leading publishers of in the U.S. who sued the Internet Archive for scanning and lending out numerous digital copies. They did this during COVID. And essentially what happened was as libraries were forced to shut down, people lost access to their physical uh, libraries and lost access to the, the, the wealth of knowledge contained in physical libraries. And so the Internet Archive started what they called the Internet Archive Emergency Library, and the Emergency Library was lending out multiple copies of a digital book at once. So these four publishers sued over 127 books in the collection, and the Internet Archive said that the National Emergency Library was in was in legal was was doing things legally under the Fair Use Doctrine, but publishers said it was mass copyright infringement. And so the U.S. District Court Judge John, I think it's Colty, agreed with the plaintiffs and said, "Yeah, basically the Internet Archive is making derivative works by turning these print books into eBooks and distributing them, and you don't have the right to do that." And so this is going. This is a this is a big deal. The Internet Archive, they're a nonprofit group, right? And the idea is they were trying to build a digital library of websites and books, of audio recordings and videos and so on and so forth. And so, like, for a while, I uploaded a lot of the Ask Noah show. There's a, there's a demand for the flack feeds of Ask Noah. And so for the, you know, handful of people that wanted that, we would put it up on Internet Archives. And it wasn't until people stopped asking for that that I, I stopped bothering to do it. But it's a way to preserve things digitally forever. And so there are institutions that do this with other works, uh, you know, of, of information. And so, you know, you have things like, uh, you know, scholarly repositories and stuff like that, but these are often very expensive and are typically only given access to by, you know, universities and stuff like that. And so you can purchase access to those articles, but it's maybe a hundred, two hundred dollars sometimes per journal article. And so you don't have access to those sorts of things. So the Internet Archive is one of the one of the last places that you were able to offer free downloadable books published before 1927. And the thing that is so egregious to me is, is there, I mean, 
Are there really anybody out there that's back from 1927 that is concerned about their works being copyright infringed? I mean, 1927? It's almost 100 years ago, for crying out loud. And yet, because of the way that our legal system works and because of the way the copyright law works, we have just, we, you know, they renew the rights and they, one company sells to another company and it events, eventually sucks up to these four huge conglomerate publishing companies and then they go after these places to include the Internet Archives. And so the real concern that I have here is this potentially has the, it has the potential to shut the Internet Archive down, the Wayback Machine down. And I think this is really disgusting and horrible. And I, I, you know, I really hope that this doesn't go anywhere. Steve, what are your thoughts? So I think that part of the problem where they ran afoul was that um, where libraries do this, but they make sure that it's a one-to-one reference. Yes. They kind of ran off the rails because they allowed multiple copies per one physical. Correct. And so uh, I, I appreciate the Internet Archive. I really do. I've, I particularly like the Wayback Machine. I find that a lot of fun. And it's also useful for on a, on a bunch of levels. But at the same time, it was a pretty dicey move. Like it was yes. generous and it was They're generous um, with other people's money though. Right. Well, but I mean, it was philanthropic in, in such a way as they saw that there was a global need and they were trying to stop it. But at the same time, um, we still, as a society, not even, not even the U S Canada doesn't matter, but as a global society, we haven't determined when is breaking a rule. Okay. For, for moral reasons. And essentially they, they went and violated what, I don't know, the average person can absolutely grok the idea that, hey, I have one physical book, so I should be able to lend one digital copy, right? The average person can understand that. And when they exceeded that, you start playing with fire. So Absolutely. So we're, I'm interested in your thoughts. Let me know if you if you come back and you notice anything or you hear anything. Keep your eyes on this. Keep an eye on specific in the EFF. Um, they are continuing to pay attention to this. They're continuing to drive it forward. Uh, and thank God we have organizations like the EFF to come and stand up to some of these companies and, and continue to move it forward. Again, you know, if it was like J.K. Rowling and, you know, Harry Potter or a thing that had come out, you know, five years ago or, or this year or something like that. Yeah, I could get it. 1927? You gotta be kidding me. The last time I truly felt that I was in control of my mobile device was when I owned my Palm Trio 755P. And I distinctly remember the day that I walked into my mobile carrier and I asked to purchase a Motorola Droid. I'd heard about this new thing called Android, that it was coming out, and that it was based on Linux, and I wanted to give it a shot. And I got it home and I started getting th- things set up. And I went to import my contacts. Now, to, this is going to date me a little bit, but on Palm OS, it would sync all of your contacts from your mobile device up to your computer using something called HotSync. And so I expected something similar to be available on Android. And I was horrified to learn that their way of backing up contacts was to store it all on Google server. And I distinctly remember looking through all of the settings, like, how do I tell this thing that I don't want my Google account syncing to Google servers? I just want to store it here locally on the device. And, you know, in 2023, I say that out loud and people, ha 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 ha, it's so funny. It's so novel. It's so cute. Like, obviously that's not a thing. But back then I expected it to be local. And that was the day I sort of gave up on privacy on mobile. And so I just accepted that that was no longer a thing I could do. My calendar and my contacts and all of that was going to go back up to Google. And I 
got to a point where I just I gave up. And so what I did was I, I've just I've skated along that boat for a long time until recently when I started to get more interested in trying to get off of any sort of carrier, not not just uh, not just Google, but Google or iPhone, because really they're both they're they're different evils, but they both infringe on privacy. And so it used to take a significant amount of time to try an alternative operating system on mobile. And frankly, they never really worked as well as as stock Android or stock or stock iPhone because they were so many years behind. And so this week, uh, my Pixel arrived and I installed it with Graphene OS and it blew away every expectation I have and then some. Was starting with the installation process. So the installation process, any idiot can do this. You plug the phone into your laptop and you go to Graffini OS's site. And it says, step one, hold down, you know, the volume button and the power button and wait for the device to reboot. So you do that and it says, is that done? Yes. Okay. Click on the unlock bootloader. And so you tap on a button on their website, unlock bootloader. It says, wait. It says, your phone is displaying a message. Accept it. And you look at the phone and it says, a request has been sent to unlock the bootloader. Would you like to confirm? Press the volume up. So you press that. Okay, it's confirmed. Then on the website, it turns to green. And the next step says, download Graphene OS. And you tap on that. And it downloads. And you get a little progress bar. It downloads Graphene OS. Then install flash Graphene OS to the phone. And you click on that. And it flashes it to the phone. And then it says, lock the bootloader. And you tap on that. And it locks the bootloader. And then it says, restart the phone. You confirm that on the phone. And now Graphene OS is on your phone. I mean, Anybody can do that. If you can visit a website and you can plug a cable into your phone and follow directions on a screen, you can do that. No more compiling ADB, no more flashing, none of it. it. It all happens transparently to you in the background. Once you get Graphene OS installed, Graphene OS is based on the Android open source project. So basically, Android publishes the source code for, open, uh, for Android, and then they give it to carriers like Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile and all the rest of them, which then add on all of their garbage to try to sell you a customized experience. Graphene OS takes the opposite approach. Graphene OS takes stock Android, the open source project, strips out all of the Google stuff, adds a metric ton of security and privacy features in to include things like verified boot and all the rest of it. Now, originally, I was off put by Graphene OS for a couple of reasons. First of all, when there was the split between Copperhead OS, and you can go back and listen to a previous episode of Ask Noah Show where I break this down, the, the, the story behind the Copper OS, Copperhead OS. But Daniel McKay split from Copperhead OS, and originally I was a little bit apprehensive because does this individual developer, is he going to really be able to bring this home? Or now that he's separated from a company, they had a marketing arm, they had a way to fund it, now how is all of this going to work? In the years since, what we've learned is, A, Daniel McKay is a man of an incredible integrity, willing to burn his own keys and sacrifice his relationship with the company rather than compromise the privacy, security, and integrity of his users. The second thing we've learned is this is a real passion of his because he's continuing to do it. And in 2023, Graphene OS is largely considered to be the most secure mobile operating system on the planet. I looked into things like uh, like Silent Circle and these companies that make very expensive privacy-based Android phones. Largely, it's a bunch of fluff. It has a lot of security features in, but it's all built into their platform. It's nothing really natively secure on the device. So I was off. The other thing that off put me of Graphene OS is the fact that you have to use a Google phone. Well, the reason for that is because the Google Pixel contains something called the Titan M security chip. And the Titan M security chip is interesting because it has its own internal clock that the operating system doesn't have any influence over. And so what it does is when you enter your PIN or your password, instead of that being processed on the operating system, it's processed through the Titan M security chip. Now, that also integrates with the disk encryption. So it stores all of the tokens that derive the keys 
on the security chip and it won't release them unless it gets the correct pin or passphrase, meaning that if you attempt to access files on the phone, you have to use that specific Titan chip on that specific phone. You can't go take another Pixel 6 and try to use that chip's Titan phone. And so the where the threat vector that this avoids is the San Bernardino iPhone shooter. So what they did there was Apple automatically burns the key and wipes the encryption key if you get like, let's say 10 incorrect attempts. So what the FBI did was they physically cut the phone open, took the flash chip out, put it into a thing, tried 10 attempts, it burns, They reflash it, try another 10 attempts, it burns. Reflash it again, try another 10 attempts, it burns. In this case, you can cut my Grafino S phone open. You can take my storage out. But because you can't spoof that Titan M clip, or a clock, you can't use any other chip. So you have to attack the chip directly. And they've intentionally made the Titan M chip very difficult to attack. So the Titan M chip will will progressively lengthen the time that it will allow attempts. After the first five attempts, the Titan will shut off for 30 seconds. And then it'll switch off the fingerprint reader and all the rest of it. Now, even if the operating system is exploited and the clock is bypassed, the Titan M will only answer to its own internal timer. Again, it, the operating system can't influence it. And so it will just simply ignore further attempts to guess the pin's passcode or password. And so if you continue to make attempts, eventually the timeout increases until you hit a maximum penalty of just one guess a day. And so at that point, one guess a day, and it's only going to reach that after 150 incorrect attempts. But again, if for some reason you've forgotten your pin or something like that, you haven't destroyed the key, which is what would happen in an iPhone or a traditional Android phone. But it's going to take you approximately two weeks to reach that timeout. And once you reach that timeout, even a four digit pin code is going to take around six and a half centuries or a two word passphrase is going to be computationally infeasible. And so they allow up to a maximum of 64 characters. So if you extrapolate that, a four word passphrase generated from entry selected from a pocket dictionary is going to be easily easy enough for you to remember, going to be easy enough for you to type in, but require 1.7 E16 or approximately 17 quadrillion years to brute force that password. So long and the short of it is you're not getting into that phone. The problem with stock Android and the problem that I have with virtually all Android phones is the amount of data that Google collects. And they're extremely, they're extremely disingenuous about it. So they've added all of these quote unquote privacy features like you can shut off location tracking, you can shut off background data syncing and all this crap, but they found other ways around it. So for example, one of the things that they do is they collect microphone data, they collect accelerometer data, they collect Wi-Fi data, Bluetooth data, and they use all of that in addition to the cellular tower connections to try to triangulate position, store all of that, and send all of that data up to Google. Quote, Google can ascertain with a high degree of confidence and certainty whether a, whether a user is standing still, walking, running, bicycling, riding on a train, or a car. It achieves this by tracking the Android mobile user's location coordinates at frequent times and intervals in combination with the data that it gets from onboard sensors, such as the accelerometer on mobile, play, on mobile phones. Figure 8 shows an example of the data communicated with Google servers while the user is walking. And we'll have this link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And they make a tremendous amount of money off of collecting data from you. So the problem is there have been other attempts to try to get around this, right? So PinePhone has come out with hardware kill switches. Pure, there's a pure phone that has hardware kill switches. But even those things are not terribly effective because audio can still be achieved through things like the gyroscope or the accelerometer. And so the, the hardware switch in and of itself isn't going to do very much. What you really need to have 
is an operating system that you can trust. And so the, the, up until now, the best choice that we've recommendation that you've had for people is, well, leave the phone at home. And then that way it removes the ability for the company to collect all of this data on you. The problem is it also removes my ability to leverage the technology for my benefit. And I do that in order to avoid having Google leverage their benefit of me using the device. And so this kind of flips it around and puts it into and, and puts the control back into my square. So as far as usability goes, if you want to, you can install Google Play services. And if you install Google Play services in the Google, uh, Google Play services uh, runtime and frameworks, I will tell you it works identical to a regular Android phone with one exception. Nothing, nothing runs as a privileged user to include Google Play services. So the advantage there is you can deny any permission to any application to include permissions to Google Play services. So you can tell Google Play, you can't get to the Internet. You're not allowed to use the Internet. You're not allowed to use network services. You're not allowed to get sensor data. Nothing. They do this in a really interesting way. Instead of we've all experienced this, an app pops up and asks for permission. Why does my game need access to my microphone? Deny. Oh, the game won't launch. Well, that really sucks. That kind of defeats the purpose of asking me for the permission. I have no choice but to allow it. With Graphene OS, what they do is it zeroes the sensor data out. So it feeds it data. It just feeds it garbage data and nothing actually useful. And so the phone or the operating, the, the app has no way of knowing that it's being fed false data. The other thing is every app is sandboxed and there's memory hardening and Wi-Fi and MAC address spoofing. All of those things come together to make it virtually impossible for you to track any one user. It always appears to the app as if it's a new user popping up. So the simplicity and quality of messaging and voice calls and video calls uh, just works. And so I'm using this with JMP. And so the advantage of JMP is it standardizes all of my telephony over IP as opposed to the carrier services. And so by default, JMP exposes it's a collection of technology that allows people to register a real phone number to be used with XMPP. And so it essentially exposes phone numbers as an XMPP address. Now, this is really advantageous because what it allows you to do is use entirely open source software. You don't need any personal information to register this account. You don't need any personal information to purchase the phone number. You can pay for it with cryptocurrency, and it is a fairly anonymous way to use a phone number. They only collect metadata and text messages for seven days, after which point they, uh, they claim that they destroy them. And the advantage here is it it really blows away data collection programs like Hemisphere. And so the, the, the ability to standardize on IP as a way to deliver means that I can get my phone calls or my messages on my laptop or I can use this as a phone. $2.99 a month, you can pay privately, and it is flawless. The only workaround that I had to do, incoming calls, well, incoming and outgoing calls are flawless under XMPP. However... There is no dial pad built into conversations, the XMPP app that is best on Android. And so you either have to add a contact by adding the phone number at geogram.com, and then you can initiate a voice call that way. Well, that's really obnoxious if you're just trying to die, if you need to like dial a number and you're just looking something up. And so where this becomes really advantageous to have two apps is I installed LinPhone and JMP allows you to use either SIP or XMPP. So I have all my incoming calls coming to XMPP and I'm taking those through conversations and outgoing calls. I 
if I, you know, I have the contacts name and I just tap on it and it dials out. But if I need to dial a phone number, I just use SIP over Linphone. And that has worked absolutely flawlessly. Now, when I said that to my wife, she kind of looked at me like I had three eyes and she's like, wait a minute, you want me to use two different apps for a phone? Like, well, here's the deal. Realistically, you don't really notice, right? Because the, when the, when an incoming call pops up, it just turns the screen black and gives you two options, the little green thing or the little red thing. Who cares what app is generating that screen? You don't even really notice that you're using two apps. I get that it's a bit of a hack, but the practicality is once you have it set up, you install two apps. And once you have it set up, you don't really notice. And again, it's all standardized under one thing. It allows you to use multiple accounts. So the the emailer that was asking about two-factor authentication, I have my private number, I have my work number, and I have my two-factor authentication number. I, by default, leave two-factor off in conversations. I don't have that account enabled. When I want to sign into a bank or something like that, open conversations, tap on the 2FA account, it enables it, I get the two-factor message, it sends me the PIN, I shut it back off, I enter the PIN, I'm good. Now, all of those spam calls and the little, hey, you can save 15% off, whatever. I don't know about it because I don't ever get it, and it works absolutely flawlessly. The matrix to SMS, which is built into JMP or is tied to JMP, is marginal at best. XMPP, the, ex- the exposing of SMS over XMPP works flawlessly every time. Group messages, sending, receiving, all of it. The problem with Matrix is they're using a service called ARIA.net that is using the Bifrost bridge to bridge SMS, or excuse me, XMPP to Matrix. Now, you'll recall that JMP is bridging from SMS to XMPP. So you've got a two-way bridge that's happening, and because you're not an admin of the room, All of your messages are coming up as individual phone numbers. And so each one of those users is a new user. And because you can't, you're not an admin of the room, you can't rename them. So you're always just going to have a list of phone numbers. Additionally, once every so often, for whatever reason, it loses connection with that room. And so what ends up happening is you get a new message under a new room. So after a few weeks of using it, you have the same contact like eight times and you have to figure out which one is the latest message. So it's not ready for prime time yet. It was useful for my daughter who wanted to talk to her friend and said, hey, I need a number. Fine. Here's two ninety nine. We buy you a phone account. We tie it to your matrix account. And now she's on one messaging platform. And she gets text messages from her friend. But outside of those very limited use cases, I don't think it's ready quite yet for prime time, but it works very, very well outside of that. And so the end result is I have a highly secured phone, a highly private phone that is entirely running on open source software that doesn't require the carrier at all. I've had, I've been running this for a week. I haven't missed a single call. The call quality is absolutely indistinguishable from regular telephony. And I've turned on the mobile data twice. And other than that, it's running entirely off of Wi-Fi and I can't tell the difference. So Steve, I know you're a person that is highly skeptical of phone, highly skeptical of phones. Has my spiel convinced you at all? Nope. I immediately think, okay, that's a great sales pitch, but that's exactly what it is because we didn't address any kind of problem okay. except except Matrix. And I just wanted to like slow everybody down because you just said 50,000 words in about a minute about mm-hmm. how, how this is terrible. What are, your, what are your specific questions or your specific concerns? Like what, are, what, what con- specifically would you be concerned about? Oh, you're not going to let me gloat over this? <laughs> um, I suppose, so there's a lot of... Uh, trouble whenever you go off the beaten path for Mm -hmm. phones, especially when you're talking about like background syncing or missing calls because something is behaving slightly differently than because anytime that you write an app for a platform and then the platform doesn't behave the way the app thinks, 
there are going to be edge cases that are going to bite you. Okay. And so the, my first thought is like, okay, we, we love on this. Where are the problems? So in the past, I've run into that. I've run into that with Lineage. I've run into that with a couple of other alternative OSs I've tried. It comes into play with apps like Uber that are they, they see being able to see the person and privacy mitigation methods as a as as a risk. Right. And so they want to know who you are. I've experienced none of that. If you install Google Play services and you exempt it from the battery optimizer so it's not shutting down in the background, it runs just like a regular Android phone, no problems at all. The other one I've had is my bank. My bank is incredibly finicky when I try to use it, even on just a browser, on on other privacy-respecting things. It just blocks it because it sees it as a, as a threat risk. Graphene OS, no problems. Works flawlessly right out of the box. So what happens when... So you touched on it, but like the magic here is trying to de-Googleify your life. So what happens when you allow um, the Play Store and its services just to run roughshod over your device in order to get those things working properly. So that's the beauty of Graphene OS. So nothing can run as a privileged user to include Google Play services. So there isn't. So the short answer to your question is, it isn't possible to let Google Play services run roughshod over your device. It's going to exist in its sandbox like every other app on the device, and it gets access to, to its own little sandboxed storage just like every other device. And the only thing that you can you can like let's say you wanted to have access to certain sensor data because you need it for your application you can manually of course allow it to do that but uh, just like all the other apps you can deny it those permissions and the, the google play services has no idea that it's being fed false data so you're saying that you could i could for example uh in theory use this as i do lineage which i, mm-hmm. I do install some small like i install micro g so i have some of the stuff because whatever work requirements sure um but you're saying that you could in theory install the google play services and still actually still maintain all of the benefits of of this the privacy aspects that's exactly what i'm saying yep and and you can choose how much of that you want to give up right if there's something you do want to send to google because you want them to have so for example you wanted to use let's say google maps or whatever and you wanted to have real location data so that you can use you can certainly and you could selectively do that right give a permission use the app and then take it away or only give it the permission when it's running those sorts of things so do you have any problems like uh, ios is famous for the killing of say next next cloud Mm. in the background or tail scale Mm -hmm. where where you might have a passive vpn active for some things yeah, that's a great question. So I've not tried it with TailScale specifically. Nextcloud, Element, and OpenVPN, I've had those issues, and the answer there is to exempt them from the battery optimizer to let them run in the background. And if you do that, flawless. And have have you had any ability to do any profiling when once you do that? Like, have you run the phone two or three days with them on the battery optimizer and then a couple of days off the battery optimizer and been able to see a difference? Yeah. So I, you know, I've not done like a, like a measured test or anything like that, but I can definitely tell you, at least with the open VPN client, there's definitely a difference in the battery life when it's running in the background versus when it's allowing it to shut down. I expect that to a degree. The only thing I would follow up with that is I would say that I, also notice some of that on my Samsung S10 running stock Android. So uh, with Nextcloud, so you know, yes, it's present on Graphene OS, but I also feel like it's present to a degree on stock Android. So I'm not sure that that's really a trade-off. 
How has F-Droid been? So I run F-Droid yeah. on my main Pixel uh, for a few applications, but it freaks out from time to time. So like I get mm-hmm. a little thing saying it's updating whatever app, and then the app literally stays in my notification bar, and I actually have to launch F-Droid to go like manually deal with it. Like, I know exactly what you're – so I've had I've, – I've had way less issues with F-Droid. Actually, I've had no issues with F-Droid on Graphene OS, and I have had issues on stock Android with F-Droid. The other thing that I'm warming up to is I've been playing with the Aurora Store. So the Aurora Store actually goes into Google Play, sucks out the APK, and installs it in a freedom-respecting way on your phone. So that's how I was able to get my bank apps and all of that. The other thing I've run into that I was pleasantly surprised, I went to install Bitwarden. And it wasn't an F-Droid. And I was like, well, that really sucks. I have this open source password manager and I can't use it because it's not an F-Droid. That, that's really a bummer. I go to Bitwarden's site. Well, gosh darn it, if you click on other mobile options, they have their own F-Droid repository and you can add a custom repository. So I'm telling, before the show, I'm telling Atypical this. And he says, yeah, there's actually some really cool third-party repositories you can add that give you a whole bunch of stuff. And so he's going to include those in the show notes and I'm going to check them out when I get off the air. Yeah, I think you're getting closer. Like, I am very much interested in privacy respecting, which is why I leave my lump of glass on my desk pretty much all day long. Yeah. Um, it might move five or 10 feet in one direction or other in the house, but it stays here, except when I'm on a very long journey for some some reason or another. So mm-hmm. I'm, I had been kind of curious before, but it's one of those things like, well... Seems like a lot of issue, like a lot of effort for, I've got a Pixel 4. Uh-huh. And so it's not technically on the supported list. And so it's one of those things like, do I go and invest $300 to get a Pixel 6 to go play around with this sort of thing? Mm, not right now. Do you, are you sure that the Pixel 4 is not supported? It, I believe that they have, it's, it's one of those things that it will work, but it's not on the, the highly, um, well, I'm not sure if supported is the right or recommended. Um. So uh, to their site, the following devices are end of life, no longer receive full security updates and are supported via extended support release. So I guess, yeah, it's not it's re- it's probably not best practice to use to use that. But uh, I don't know. I would tell you. So one of the things that I like about my method here is. I mean, I guess this is, it's not a one-to-one comparison because your concern is some apps that only run an Android. But for me, it's I'm able to this this device now is really just another conduit to the same thing that Gajim and Linphone on my laptop gets me, and so I can live perfectly comfortably out. There's nothing my phone does that I can't do off of my laptop, and increasingly, there's nothing telephony-wise that I can do on my laptop that I can't do via an open source app on my phone, and that just yeah makes me happy to be able to say that. For me, like it has literally nothing to do with communication, as oddly as that sounds. Like <laughs> it really yeah. doesn't. Yeah. It's it's got to do with like I have to have some esoteric app because my client, um, you know, has some requirement for me to have this this app or that app for security, and um, that that is definitely part of a concern of mine. You know, it would be interesting. It would be interesting to because I assume that the apps that you have to download. Um, even though th- how they're used is maybe specific in your environment, the apps I'm I'm sure I could probably download and try on just a, on on a spare device, right? Yeah, I mean, as long as you would be able to test their functionality, just because they launch doesn't mean that um, they necessarily like. So one of them, for example, mm-hmm. it's kind of got that dead man thing where you can give a bad password and it'll still spit out and like a proper like a, a token, and you don't uh, know if it's false or not. Okay. And so there's things like that where I'm like, 
I'd have to be really sure because I'd have egg on my face if I called up the help desk of some client and they're like, yeah, that happens when blah, blah, blah. And you just have to have a supported phone. Yeah. Yeah, I can see. And here's the thing. To your point, I still have today. I still have two phones, right? I have my stock, my S10 that has stock Android on it. And I have Grafino S, which I'm st- I would still say I'm testing. It's just after week one, my takeaway is if it would have functioned to where it just had, you know, like you have the software kill switch is where I can kill the mic and I can kill the camera. And if an app tries to access it, it just says, nope, you don't have permission to that thing. And and then it gives me a pop up like, hey, do you want to unblock this? That alone, that kind of stuff alone and not having Google stuff installed would have been good enough. And I, I would have been happy with that. The fact that everything else works and it works securely and privately without me having to do anything is just kind of icing on the cake. So I'm going to go a few more weeks with it and I'll see. But at this point, I have I was I was looking for the problems. I was looking for something I didn't like. I absolutely found those things on Lineage OS. I absolutely found those things on Sailfish OS. I absolutely found those things on Postmarket OS. And as much as I like all of those other projects, there are absolutely downsides. I as I sit here tonight, I just struggle to understand what the downside is of Grafino S. Maybe it exists. I just can't seem to find it. Well, I'm eagerly listening to this one because uh, the Pixel 4, uh, 4a goes out of support the end of August this year. So I have to jump phones anyways. Well, when that happens, maybe uh, maybe maybe Santa will be kind to you this year and, and, a, and a Grafino S uh, Pixel will show up at your doorstep or something like that. Yeah, who knows? The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can check out the show notes. A tip, there's a feedback this today that talked about really appreciating the good show notes. As much as I would like to take credit for it or Steve would like to take credit for it, we actually don't have a lot to do that with that. That all goes to, the credit there all goes to a typical. He puts all of that together for us each week. You can get the latest by following us on Twitter. I'm, or the show is at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Evans. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. See you then.